This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. From the shuttered factories of the Rust Belt to the look-alike strip malls of the Sun Belt, America has been transformed by its relentless fixation on low price. In her new book, Cheap, The High Cost of Discount Culture, our guest today, Ellen Ruppelschell, traces the birth of the bargain as we know it, from the Industrial Revolution to the assembly line and beyond. Schell is a correspondent for the Atlantic Monthly magazine. She is also the author of The Hungry Gene and a professor of journalism at Boston University, where she co-directs the graduate program in science journalism. Ellen Ruppelschell, welcome to Weekly Signals. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for being here. How are you today? I'm great. How are well, you? Uh, we're, we're doing real well. Is, is no more rain in Boston? Uh, well, I actually am in Maine right now. Ah. And, uh, it's it's kind of dreary, but it's always a good day in Maine. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and is there a reason for that other than Maine's just a great place? Uh, well, I like the outdoors. And uh. So uh, I kayak, and uh, so I'm up here doing a little of that. All righty. Do you, do you take on rapids? Oh, no, no, okay. no, I don't. I, I bet some of your listeners do, but unfortunately, uh, I'm I'm a little beyond that in years, I'd say. Well, I, I wouldn't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, ocean kayaking. I do ocean Oh, kayaking. really? Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, Which really? is exciting enough, exciting enough for me. Yeah, I, I would say so. I, I, I'm not even that far. I, I kayak in my bathtub. That's about <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. so, so, so tell me, how does a, 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 somebody who co-directs the science the graduate program in science journalism at, at Boston University. And you write a book on uh, the high cost of discount culture. Well, you know, I'm very interested in the intersection of science, politics, and culture, and that's been the focus of my writing, both for The Atlantic, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. and my books. Um, so my last book was, as you, you know, as you said, The Hungry Gene. It was about the obesity pandemic, and obviously there's a, there's a lot of science in that. There's actually more science in cheap uh, than you might uh, think. Uh, you know, there's a lot of neuroscience and how marketers um, persuade us to to buy things uh, using price as a signal. And it's it's actually much more sophisticated uh, and surprising than I thought it was. Well, talk about that little uh, a little bit. How how is it that they manipulate us? What are they doing? And what triggers in our brain when we when we see a low price? Well, you know, it's really interesting. I didn't realize this, and, and I, I actually, again, as someone who has a background in science, was was really surprised at my own irrational response to price, because uh, I think of myself as a, a very rational person. I might be flattering myself, but I do think of myself as a rational person, and yet um, I am very deal-prone. I, 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 am, I respond uh, very um, powerfully to, to what I think of as a good deal. And my kids will tell you that I come home sometimes with, you know, if I come home with three boxes of cereal, they know that that, the, that cereal was on sale because they would <laughs> never do that. And I don't need all three boxes, but there you go. One goes yeah. stale. And so uh, <laughs> what, what, what happens is that um, retailers know this, marketers know this. When we see a discount price, a low price on and many consumer goods, 
we address it as if it's a game that we want to win. It's, it's not a purchasing decision. It's not a rational purchasing decision necessarily. It's often a part of game-playing uh, behavior in our brain. Mm-hmm. And it, it triggers um, what they call the first pro- uh, process in the brain, which is the less rational, more emotional side of the brain. And it kind of buffers or, or uh, distracts from the, uh, primary, the secondary process, which is the more rational side. Mm-hmm. Now- uh, you know, there are all sorts of signals that do that, and discounters know them all. Yeah. Uh, how, how much time do they spend uh, manipulating us as far as price goes? And, and how many of this? I, I guess the real question here is, are there, are there really any markdowns anymore, or are they manipulating us to think that we're getting markdowns? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a very good question. You, you've obviously read the book. Yeah. Um, there, there's a whole list of things that I discuss in the book in terms of how they make us think things are marked down when they're not. Um, one is the reference pricing. And I don't know if you've – have you ever bought a mattress for full price? <laughs> <laughs> I can't say that I have. You probably haven't. Yeah. And very few of us have because the um, mattresses are sold uh, – uh, on sale, supposedly, and other brands of mattresses are are sold, uh, really are not sold, but are put out as a as a decoy in a way at higher prices. Um, they're the reference price, and so we think we're getting a sale because we're getting a mattress at what seems to be a lower price. This is also true of other things like jewelry and other sometimes um, discount goods uh, in outlet stores. That the reference price is what we think the the object is worth, um, is told to us, and there's no evidence that anyone or, or many people ever pay that price. Yeah. But it's very important to have that reference price because a sweater that you would never buy for $50 if you thought it was the full price, you're much more likely to buy if they say, well, the real price is 150 and now it's 50 yeah. It's the same sweater, but you will buy it if, it's, you, know, if you think the full price is 150 bucks. Yeah. So there are all sorts of things that uh, discounters use. And as I discovered uh, in the journey of doing this book, there are legions of PhDs that are involved in setting markdowns. Wow. It's, a, it's a whole industry. Uh, it involves uh, multi-million, probably billion dollars worth of software and extremely smart people who, who are involved in this industry. Um, it just shocked me yeah. <laughs> to find that out. I, I had no idea. Now, can you get a doctorate in markdowns from Boston University? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can get a Ph.D. in operations research from huh. the you know, MIT and, and go into this. And, uh, in fact, uh, one of the people I interviewed was such a man. Um, uh, and there, many of the people involved in this are, are extremely sophisticated. Do they feel any guilt? You know, <laughs> that's an interesting question. I think it's abstracted for them. It's a mathematical problem to be yeah. solved, yeah. okay? And they don't feel guilty. And, I, you know, honestly, I don't think they should feel guilty. They're uh, interesting people. Um, they're, uh, you know, they're doing their job. And, uh, you know, they, they are part of, of this whole industry, but I, I, I really wouldn't want to throw any guilt their way well uh, let, let me ask you because it, it sounds okay let's say just in this the scenario you described you've got your mattress out there you've got your fifteen hundred dollar mattress and you've got a whole slew of seven hundred dollar mattresses i assume or something like that right 
Sure. And the the extra benefit to that situation seems to me, if somebody happens to buy the $1,500 mattress because they're convinced that that is the the top of the line, isn't there a psychology that's in play as well on something like that? That uh, they sell a few of those, they've made uh, obviously an enormous profit on those. Absolutely. Although, I I have to caution you, I mean, that's, you know, you're you're asking really good questions. Um, The more we know about something, the less we are likely to become entrapped by this discount fervor, okay? Mm -hmm. And so, do you know a lot about mattresses? Because I don't. No, I don't. You don't? Okay. (laughs) Most people don't. And the less we know about something, the less likely we are to know what it's, what it's worth or what the price is, and the more prone we are to this, to this discount um, a fever, okay? So if you're a connoisseur of something, if you really know something, and, and I bet your listeners, you know, each of them will be a connoisseur of something. Uh, my husband's a connoisseur of beer, okay? okay. Um, right. I'm, I'm really, I'm, coffee is my thing. Oh, and yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not likely to be um, persuaded by a low price when it comes to coffee. I, I, you know, I'm, I am willing to pay. Uh, I don't go to Starbucks <laughs> because okay. I think it's overpriced, and, and I don't think their coffee is particularly good. But I, I make it at home, and I'm, I'm careful about what I buy. Um, all of us have things like that in our lives that we're, we're careful about and we know the price of. But most things we don't know the price of. And those are the, the things that are most often um, uh, have these uh, misleading discounts. Okay, so when you go to Walmart, for example, about one-third of, of, of items at Walmart are not even discounted compared to the prevailing prices in the region. But you don't know that because you don't know the prices of those things. Um, they, they tend to discount things that people buy uh, often, uh, and that they can buy in great bulk. Of course, Walmart buys everything in bulk, but all discounters um, tend to sell at the lowest price what they can buy in great bulk and uh, are, are general commodities. So, for example, they may um, offer milk at a low price because you buy that all the time and you know the price of milk. But you may be picking up some other things that day, and you tend to, when you go to discounters, you tend to, to pick up a lot of things. that you have no idea what the price is, and therefore, whatever price they're charging you, you think is a good deal because you're buying it in a discount store. Well, in a grocery store, I mean, I, I happen to work in a in a grocery in grocery store. But uh, if I go, I'll name names here. I, if I go into an Albertsons, they have the, uh, the the price that you can pay, or you have the price if you have the Albertsons card, right? Right. Which is substantially less. Yes. So there are all kinds of ways that they're manipulating you into getting that obviously you're going to if you can get the cheaper price here but you also become part of a database and they market to you or they understand the demographic about you and try to market their product then there there is a there's a fine line here between being smart about these things and then and the crossing over into this just general manipulation of of us as consumers and also on the other end of all of this, speaking of food, we're in the food. We're talking about food right now. The and the cost at the other end of this is this constant pressure, downward pressure, on people who produce these products in order to accept lower wages, which then again feeds into this whole system of I need to buy cheap stuff because I'm not making enough money to really afford anything more than that. So this becomes am I over over analyzing a self perpetuating environment or culture here. 
You know, I don't think we're overanalyzing it because I don't think a lot of us, at least I didn't, you know, think that much about it. Um, I used to go for the, you know, lowest price stuff. If I didn't know about, you know, the items, like I said, coffee, I didn't. But many other things, most other things, price was a determining factor for me. And I think it is for many, many Americans. And if you do understand the cycle that you just discussed, um, you may think twice before participating in it. But many of us don't really think it through and we it, it doesn't really occur to us it's not our fault we just yeah. don't really think it through and what you're describing um in terms of a downward cycle is absolutely the case i mean there's this idea that we have to frenetically lower prices because our wages have been flat our wages and benefits have been flat since the 1970s and at the same time uh the prices um have gone down on consumer goods considerably but they've gone up dramatically on things we can't live without, right. like health care and housing and transportation. Those, um, child care, uh, those are things that we absolutely have to have, um, and yet we're distracted uh, by low-price co- low uh, tube socks and T-shirts and okay. insist on those low prices while we have to endure um, you know the the main uh, expenses in our life uh, going up and up, and our salaries and benefits being flat or actually recently going down, um, even controlling for inflation. So this is something that um, I argue in cheap um, certainly has contributed to this current economic downturn. I I totally believe it, and I think I've substantiated it in the book with um, many conversations with economists. Uh, both here and abroad, and uh, I think it's an overlooked part of the problem. Yeah. We're speaking with Ellen Ruppelschell. The book is Cheap, the High Cost of Discount Culture. Oh, what can we do as, though, as consumers? Because it seems like we're kind of outside of this loop. And, and just for what it's worth, the, well, you know what? Let me ask you this, too, before I, <laughs> I get into what can we do as consumers. Sure. What's your favorite coffee? Well, you know, um, it depends where I'm at, where I am. <laughs> okay, so you like you like to get it locally. I do. I was oh. in San Francisco last week, uh, you know, talking about the book, and uh-huh. uh, got some very good coffee. I've been to Seattle, of course. It's it's wonderful. Um, I was in Marin as well. You're you're in Irvine, right? Oh yeah. So I, I know my coffee source here. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> Which was fabulous. And here in Maine, we have a, a great coffee roaster. Um, a local guy uh, who uh-huh. does a great job uh, with his coffee. And, again, you know, that is my treat. That is uh-huh. where I, uh, you know, expend a little bit more money. But, in fact, because I, you know, I buy it and make it myself, it's it's a good deal cheaper than probably the cheapest coffee you could buy made by someone else. Yeah. Before before Nathan gets to his question, because you're describing, you're both talking about something you know an awful lot about. And as you said earlier, you would never pay the least amount. You wouldn't look for the cheapest coffee you could find because you know what it should taste like and you appreciate it. You understand the dynamics. Um, two, two part. Did, would you ever consider, because of that, because of your, what you know about coffee, does that, did that, would that cause you to think about the ramifications of the cheapest coffee that you could buy? In other words, heading all the way down to the farmers in Colombia and in Africa who can't afford to, the, the the crops that they're they're growing to live on, and that did you would that is that part of the chain? Is in other words, are we the more we know about the products that we we buy, are we more likely to consider all of these ramifications? Is that something that came in to your head as you? Well, I wish I wish I was such a saint. Um, <laughs> 
I'm not, and uh, I, I, you know, I like coffee, always have, and, and so that's something that I'm careful about. But I can tell you, um, as I said, doing research for the book, uh, uh, an economist at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst has done um, a series of studies. His name is uh, Robert Pollan, and he's done a lot of studies asking American consumers would they be willing to spend a little more if, they knew what they bought was not made with child labor, was was made responsibly, mm-hmm. um, and consumers say absolutely um, mm-hmm. that they would spend um, a significant amount more, not, not you know, huge amounts more. Um, and he also makes the case that it wouldn't require um, a large expenditure. So, for example, he gives uh, a, a $20 shirt, and I think he said the increased cost would be about, uh, at retail, would be about 24 to 26 cents on that shirt to ensure that it is made responsibly. Um, Americans are more than willing to pay that. They just simply are not given the choice by discounters because, uh, as I say in in the book, um, where at one time we had a relationship with the merchants that we worked with and we bargained with them, the merchants we did business with, and we, we could bargain with them and come to the best price for both of us, now we, we rely on the merchants to squeeze every penny out of those things. And the way they do that is by squeezing their suppliers right down the supply chain. Yeah. So that not only affects, you know, workers in the developing world, which we're well aware of, and I was in China when I did the, you know, to do the book, and I, I saw how that played out, and I think, I think we all know what that's about. Yeah. Um, but it affects us because those, we're, we are competing with the China price. You know, yeah. we, we now, our workers have to um, compete with that price. And th- that, is, that is what led, has led yeah. to, the, to the decline in wages and benefits in the United States. And the destruction of any sort of manufacturing base in this country as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, how can we possibly compete? Um, but, of course, this is all, you know, moving over into our knowledge workforce as well. So we really have to think, do we want to continue in this di- downward spiral? There, there's a whole change in the political culture in this country, and it, I don't know when it started exactly, but it seemed to really take hold in the 80s. In this, and it's, it was referred to, I mean, through a whole slew of issues, going uh, to social uh, policies, and, uh, you know, welfare and all kinds of things, but this race to the bottom. It seems to be the the phrase for me that resonates the most. It seems like we're the United States at one point preeminent manufacturing industrial power in the world has been in a race to the bottom. And and as you're describing these things, I'm just thinking about the suppliers and coffee is a good example. We had somebody on on uh, another show that we do uh, who did a documentary about this. And just a few cents more, the farmers who actually grow the coffee in these far-flung regions of the world, could actually afford to feed their family for just a few cents more. As it is, they end up growing coffee, and they supplement it with cocaine or poppy or whatever, and people shoot at them. Instead of coming to harvest their products, Come, people come to bomb them and destroy their lo- way of life. And it, so the consequences continue to sort of reverberate. And when you're talking about an industrial base, uh, industrial uh, products, you're talking about uh, less money for uh, pollution controls, which and environmental issues uh, suddenly uh, become a predominant thing. And we end up picking up the cost of this, not at the front end, but on the b- back end of all this, we're going to end up paying a, some, a tremendous cost. 
Well, we're already paying the cost, and yeah, yeah. I think um, those of us who have uh, children know that, for example, um, 80% of college graduates this year graduated without a job. Right. Um, mm-hmm. We're, you know, those of us who live in California, uh, some of your listeners, I would assume, or most of them, um, are experiencing pollution wafted over from China, air pollution. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're already experiencing these effects big time, and you're absolutely right about the race to the bottom. Uh, in, I do two chapters of history in, in the book, which I found absolutely fascinating. This was total news to me. And what, uh, certainly in the uh, turn of the last century, in the early 1900s, uh, predatory pricing or you know, lowering prices too low was considered very, very bad form. And, in fact, there were huge protests and laws put in place to prevent this predatory pricing because they rightfully knew that this was going to de-skill jobs, uh, lead to unemployment, which, of course, was the worst possible thing in those days, and especially in the 1920s, as we all know about the Great Depression toward the end of the 20s and the 30s. People were very, very worried about this predatory pricing. And at, you know, during World War II, we had scarcity, and um, there was a concern about price gouging, and you know, this was all reversed. But Americans uh, were very concerned about cheap goods, uh, meaning cheap men or cheap workers, and very, very worried about it. And we seem to have, you mentioned the 80s, and of course the deregulation of the 80s, the Reagan administration, the um, uh, lifting of protections for American workers. I mean, this is no secret, the deunionization, all that led to uh, this, you know, certainly exacerbated this race to the bottom, which, of course, was enabled by technology and things that we we can't, uh, you know, put back in the bottle. I mean, these are, you know, these are advances, and I, I certainly don't argue against globalism or, or, or technology, but I think we need to control it and not have it control us. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's my argument. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is. It's strong. So, I mean, back, back to where we were, yeah, yeah. just when I was asking you about coffee, uh, what can we do as consumers? I mean, do, do we get more informed about the products we uh, are yeah. purchasing? And, yeah. and also, do, do we uh, not shop at outlet malls and not shop at Costco and Walmart <laughs> and try to find somewhere local? You know, Costco does a much better job of than Walmart. Um, okay. And I, I, I don't go into Costco at, at length in the book or Walmart in the book. Um, I focus on some other more surprising things, I think. But mm-hmm. uh, what I what I suggest is uh, something that goes back hundreds of years uh, when uh, I think it was some uh, sort of marketing philosopher who said that uh, knowledge in the marketplace is the most valuable and the scarcest thing. And I think that that arming ourselves with knowledge and understanding and kind of making a determination about what we want and why we want it, um, demanding to know where things come from and and, uh, how they're made whenever possible, um, it astonished me to, to, in the course of doing the book, to go to discount jewelry stores, for example, and see things, you know, that were priced at thousands of dollars that I could not find out where they were made. Um, I could, you know, the, the, the people claim that they didn't know where they were made or how they were made, and yet there's an expectation that I'm going to plunk down a good deal of money to buy these things without knowing anything about them. So, you know, I encourage people to, uh, I've certainly changed the way I shop. I'm a much more careful shopper. Um, I, I am now saving money <laughs> because I am not, uh, uh, I don't run out 
with every, I don't respond to every bargain. I certainly look at bargains and, and, and think, look, is this something I would want anyway? Right. Um, am I being seduced by price, or is this something I really want? And I'm looking much more carefully at um, uh, crafted, you know, cr- craft versus design. And I do a chapter on that, uh, you know, at IKEA. I went to Sweden and went to IKEA yeah. and showed that, you know, sort of discussed the difference between designing to price and, you know, seducing us with, with design uh, and producing products with, with no craftsmanship so they don't last uh, and um, are cheap but are essentially disposable. Yeah. And those are not things that are going to work for me in my life anymore. anymore. They, they may work for some, but even for, you know, young people who I speak with about this, I say, look, if you buy a good secondhand bookshelf, um, it'll probably cost you less. You can paint it, you can do with it what you want, and then you can sell it on Craigslist and make most of your money back. If you buy these disposable things, they, many movers, for example, won't even move IKEA furniture because they're worried about it breaking. Yeah. You're unlikely to be able to resell it. You won't really get value out of it, and even in the short run, you're going to lose money. So, well, no, that's you know, yeah, it's yes. a way to rethink the whole calculation. Well, one other thing, and we're running very, very short on time here, but one other thing that we could do, we can bring to Congress and to our the administration of this country people who are not in the business of voting to subsidize these industries that allows them to get away with billions of dollars are are spent in this country every year to industries to help subsidize them to make a profit at the expense of paying people a little bit more money and having to charge a little bit more money for quality products. Let's let's see if we can start to move that ball forward a little bit as well. Well, listen, thank you. I've got a, another call coming in. Okay. All right. All right. Um, uh, it's been uh, great uh, talking to you guys. Okay. All right. You're, you're just terrific. All right. Thank, thank you, you so much, Ellen. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. You Bye-bye. too. Bye-bye. That, the book is The High Cost of Discount Culture, Cheap, The High Cost of Discount Culture, and that was Ellen Ruppel Shell. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.